This show is sponsored by FIS. Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Regulatory scrutiny relating to banks and fintech partnerships is really starting to heat up, and it must be said, generally for good reasons. This week, Jason is going to dive deep into that with his guests, Kirsten Mutzel, Chief Risk Officer of Funded, Keith Evans, who's Vice President of Vendor Management at First Northern Bank, and Clayton Mitchell, Principal at Crow. They're going to discuss the regulatory complexity of creating fintech partnerships, vendors as well as partners, and the value of these partnerships as financial institutions work their way down the yellow brick road. Then Dara Tarkowski, host of Tech on Reg right here on Provoke.fm, will speak with Revolver's Director of Products, Amanda Cohen about reg tech and risk management. Resolver is changing the landscape of risk management by analyzing risk data in context to use risk as a strategy in business development. By developing this type of technology, modern businesses are able to keep a pulse on the regulatory market and transform into risk-intelligent entities. Regulatory scrutiny, especially as it relates to banks and fintech partners, is you know starting to get a little hot in here as regulators are being more vocal about how they approach this. And one of the key aspects that we spend an awful lot of time on is you know, really mapping how do we get from regulation and guidance into the practical of what we do. And I want to start with a philosophical question. And... Kirsten, I'm going to look at you with the former regulatory hat on it. Why is it so hard across all of these institutions to make this translation and how we approach the regulatory complexity of having and creating fintech partnerships? Well, I think there's two ways to look at that, Jason. Uh, we can first look at how difficult it is if you are at a regulatory agency and you want to get new guidance out into the industry, that in itself is complicated. And so when you think about any of the FFIEC guidance that comes out, that takes a lot of coordination, collaboration across the, the agencies. So just to get to the point where you have a consistent message out into the market, takes so much work. And um, a lot of times what you end up with is the guidance that comes out is not, it doesn't hit everything that the banks need. It doesn't address everything that would tell the bank, these are the clear expectations because there's been so much compromise just to get a publication out into the market. So I think that's one aspect of um, the dilemma that we're in right now is that you have many different agencies. The way that our banks are regulated is through lots of different parties. Uh, and then I think the other is that when you look at the way that supervision is conducted, it is really conducted on the ground. And so you have different examiners that are going in to each of these banks and that some of the messages can be interpreted through those uh, people that are landing at the bank and, and giving their own interpretations of how they think the bank needs to execute the guidance. So I think that there's, there's a few different issues going on right now that we're, we're seeing playing out with some of the banks. Um, and what would make it helpful uh, for the banks is to have more of these um, publications that are FAQs, more publications like the handbooks, uh, more um, speeches from the uh, the key players at the agencies, giving their um, interpretations so that the banks can implement from there. Yeah, Kirsten, I uh, I uh, I agree with everything you just said on that. 
the different regulatory agencies, it seems like in this area of uh, guidance that the OCC has taken the lead. And, um, but yeah, we know that there's the FDIC, then of course credit unions are regulated separately, you have state agencies. So I think consistency is a, a great point in terms of regulatory guidance and, and, uh, and helping banks along navigate this, this new area. Uh, my experience with um, uh, regulatory agencies are sometimes uh, they tend to be uh, road construction in a lot of detours because they don't really quite understand uh, how this is going to impact the bank. And so instead of just saying, hey, this is a really cool thing, we're going to have banks partner with fintechs and, and utilize uh, service products and services is going to benefit both the fintech, the bank, and of course, the win-win-win scenario with the customers. And they just tend to say, okay, we don't quite understand that. So let's just, you know, Let's throw up, a, we're going to do road signs and say detours and roadblocks. And I know in my role as a vendor management officer, I tend to look at it as that we're more of, of a speed bump, not a stop sign. So we're just starting to make sure that uh, our partners, whoever they may be with the fintechs, understand that uh, we do have, we are regulated by regulatory guidance, period. Our regulator is going to come in, they're going to ask these questions, they're going to say, let me see your documentation, what's your due diligence, you know, how are you, you know, uh, assessing risk, uh, those kind of things. And they're going to make sure that we're, we thought this through. Um, it does get frustrating when you get different regulators putting their own personal spin on it. And, or they're not consistent. So maybe one audit you have or examination you have, they come in and they said, ah, we saw your policies, procedures, you're all good. Hey, keep doing what you're doing, everything's fine. Then 18 months, two years later, they walk in and they, they're just hammering you over every little I not uh, dotted, every T not crossed, and you're just stunned you know, from that standpoint. So I think that adds a lot of confusion, especially in this arena. Yeah. One of my concerns, Keith, is getting all the I's dotted and T's crossed in advance sometimes feels a bit like a fool's errand that you just can't predict what's going to be the most important thing. And so that this is where I worry that the detours and stop signs, you know, come in that you're talking about is if we're looking for all the I's and T's, we sometimes lose the big picture about where the greatest risks are and our ability to respond to. It. And Clayton, I know you, your team is boots on the ground with a lot of these where you're coming back in to help remediate that something may have happened, you know, in the past. Do you have any, you know, stories that can bring that to like, could, in some of these things where you go have to help clean up, could they have been seen in advance? Yeah, great, great question. And I, I, I laughed when, when Keith said road construction, because I was, as I was, if I've been thinking about this and even preparing for the conversation today, the the imagery that kept popping into my head was the yellow brick road, and and the fact that um, we we kind of like to see and, and have you know the risk management functions and the operational functions seen as advisors, or you know it's the it's the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion helping you down the road, but having those advisors really at the end of the day to to see those bumps and to see those circumstances and and to identify you know what it what needs to be in place from a risk management standpoint uh or from a compliance standpoint to to continue down the road and i think jason you're right i i, I also believe that you know there there are there are foreseen circumstances and there are some expectations that that should be able to be seen early on as you're planning even in in so much as as you're identifying the outcomes for your customers, what are what are the intended consequences, and how do we how do we go on offense, essentially at the end of the day, and define what good looks like at each of those major stages of how you look to partner, be that you know across all of the different areas of of strategy and the financial performance and the risk management and controls, monitoring and testing, all the things that have to happen as a as it pertains to that relationship and setting out how are we going to do that? How are we going to do that in an incremental way where we are identifying and putting those processes and controls in place 
at stages where they make sense that are investment aligned, we continue to operate in a safe and sound manner. And, and that we we do that with all the all the different stakeholders in the bank and with the, our partner at the table in that in that situation. And the way that we've we've done that, and we can probably you know transition into the discussion about the third party due diligence project that, that Keith and I worked on with with Alley Labs is setting minimal acceptable maturity and looking at the levels of acceptable maturity and and the way that we've defined minimal acceptable maturity is a regulation or rule requires it, it aligns to your risk appetite or or you wanna be more, I don't wanna say conservative, but you wanna be more balanced in your approach and that you're you're defining what that is. So you, you can deviate against that, but then you you really apply resources, people process technology and understand the data that you need to get there. Well, why don't we go into this minimal maturity? Because I think it's easy for some to gloss over and go, oh, we do a risk rating. But you know, I'll just say it because I'm not a regulated entity. I find like this risk rating system is stupid. Like that, you know, nothing is a one and nothing is a five. And what does it mean if you're a two, three, four? So I love the rigor around the minimal maturity model. If you could walk through that a little bit more, Clayton. Yeah, and and it's a pretty astute sort of approach there, Jason. Because as we went into the the initial conversations on third party due diligence, everybody was really caught down in is this a critical vendor or is this a high risk vendor or or what what level of risk rating is it? And I think the way that that we got to pretty quickly is if you're going to partner and you're going to deliver product as a distribution channel through a third party. It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, it's 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 going to be seen on a higher criticality angle than what you would have would have seen before. So what we did with the with the help of the alliance and uh, the leadership of Keith and others that that worked with us on this was really identify incremental stages of growth. So as you're looking to develop a proof of concept. What is the uh, so, uh, applicable level of maturity that needs to be in place? So, across your your risk management, across your financial operations, across execution and engagement with partners, what does what does that level of maturity need to look like for that proof of concept limited limited customer base, controlled friends and family type of a situation? What happens then when you're rolling out? And you're you're exposing PII, you're exposing organic customers, you start to begin to market the product. So kind of looking at that stage and evolution of how the bank is partnering with the fintech or how the fintech is growing their business, and then ultimately what should we expect from them as a result of that? Because I think where we've where we've really fallen down as an industry is for that startup that we're doing a pilot on and maybe the first four banks that they partner with are going to be their lifeline to growth and development. We're expecting this great big pack of magic <laughs> that they bring to the equation. And ultimately it's not there. So we're, we're setting unrealistic expectations, which I think was the, the, the genesis of this whole project in and of itself, because we're going to that guidance from the fall of 2021. And we're saying Gosh, this is great, but are we really going to get audited financial statements from a founder of, of an early stage company? Probably not. So how do we how do we bring that to life, and how do we take those principles and make it real? So that's that's the that's the real piece there. And then as the as the organization continues to bring that one product to life, what maturity do we expect to see from that from that partner when they have multiple projects and products in the market? What do we expect from them from then? an enterprise control of their systemic risk in the way that they execute, just like you would for your own organization. Uh, uh, one of the things that we found interesting when we were going through and risk rating, when we originally got back the, the ratings from some of the members to start doing some number crunching, we had to, we had to do a bit of a, 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 a person in the mirror moment and say, we expect this from our partners, but if we were to say, is our risk management up to snuff as it relates to information security or cyber awareness within our organizations? Is it really optimized? Is it really at a level that, that we feel like we're then expecting uh, our, our third parties or our partners to be at? 
and that really brought some i would say some fairly intense dialogue and and proper amounts of of friction to say gosh yeah we need to really look at this in a meaningful way and look at these organizations truly as partners and not adversarial and that mindset shift between vendor and partner when we were having those conversations and that dialogue about the third party due diligence program and project i think that was really what flipped the switch for a lot of us and and really started to to then get the the ideas rolling and and the principles based view driving keith i'm curious because you have vendor is literally in your title uh as part of this how do you think of the difference between vendor and partnership when you're coming into some of these relationships because with vendor it does often feel adversarial and you know your job is you know to be the proctologist to go find the problems within the partner but i'm curious how you think of partnership versus vendor yeah um jason i've always thought of vendors as a partner that's just my personal philosophy. I've never thought of vendors as adversarial, meaning that you know if we if we have uh, information, uh, in-house knowledge and expertise, then we wouldn't be seeking outside help if we had that all in-house. We're not the big banks like B of A's and Wells Fargo, where you have the development staffs, you have the expertise, you have unlimited resources and finances and R&Ds. Uh, so we have to depend on vendors, fintechs, and other partners to help us accomplish what we want at a reasonable price we can offer to our customers so we can remain competitive and we can be efficient uh, from that standpoint. So I've never, personally, I've never looked at uh, those as an adversarial role. Uh, having said that, I try to just let them know that, hey, uh, I'm not here to, you know, to put a stop sign up. I'm not here to, uh, to say no to any of this relationship. I'm trying to make sure it works, but I also have regulatory guidelines and bank policies and risk assessments that we have to make sure that we're in line. And, and for lack of a better word, because I can't really, um, I don't really like this term, but we're just checkbox, you know, checkbox compliance. We're just making sure that, hey, yep, you know, they have that financial statement. Yep, they have a BCP plan. Yep, they did their testing. You know, because in the bottom line, it's just here you go, regulators, but it really doesn't impact the relationship of their product or services or helping service our customers. Um, you know, for us, you know, Clayton was talking about the minimum uh, acceptable maturity from that standpoint. And, you know, whether it's a startup company, whether a partner, whether a growing a company or fintech or at scale full-blown big company uh for us it really doesn't matter that we don't take into consideration whether you're a startup or a full-blown we're just saying what are you providing and how are and how are we doing that meaning that are you going to have access to our customer uh, data you know and if so how you're using that because it doesn't matter if you're a small company or big company we're still going to have to make sure that you're protecting that and so in going deeper whether that's uh cybersecurity plans we're going to do on-site visits you know how are you going to scale that what if you know you get bigger because clayton said well if you're a startup company you got four customers and we're one of them hey things are great next thing you know they expanded to 30 companies how are they still going to be able to provide protect our systems and our our, our data etc so i've always looked at it as just more of a partnership and i just try to work with them let them know this is what i have to have how can we make this work for both of us yeah i'll jump in on that topic too about vendors and partners and classifying those so when i when i think about these programs we rely on the regulatory guidance that's the third party guidance to help us shape what our risk management program is over this. But I don't necessarily think of partnerships, these fintech arrangements to me are always a critical third party to the bank. And the reason for that, so so getting into that, you know, risk tiering and whether it makes sense, uh I I always drive to there's a corporate entity that the bank is entering a legal agreement with. 
That legal agreement makes it a third party since they're not really a customer of the bank and then thereby TPRM wouldn't apply. But the legal agreement says, okay, we now have a corporate. We diligence that corporate like we would with any other legal agreement that we enter into. And then when we realize that that business arrangement with that separate entity is going to lead to that entity using our bank charter and operating as um, not a supplier of services to the bank, but as um, a channel that brings us additional users, uh, that's when that switch flips for me. And I think, okay, we need to not only diligence the corporate, diligent as a third party against our TPRM policy, but we also need to treat this as a critical relationship to the bank because they're operating on our charter, on our license and our regulatory authority. Um, so I, you know, always think it's critical. I then go to, okay, do I have another policy in our institution that would govern the way we operate with this channel partner? Uh, and the way that I think about that is much like if you were in another industry, you could think about indirect auto lending and you can think about the dealerships when users come in, you know, people come in to buy a car, they meet with a dealer. They're not the financing vehicle. That's the, the, just the people that deliver you the car. It's much like these technology providers deliver you a tech platform. Um, but the diligence that the bank needs to do on that dealership is very similar to the way that I think about these fintech arrangements and the diligence and then having a management program over all of them. Um, so, you know, do I apply a third party policy? Yes. Do I then risk rate them as critical because they're operating on my license and representing me as the bank? Yes. I then have a different policy that governs these relationships that's above and beyond my standard third party policy. And then from that, I look at my partnerships as, are they significant to the bank or not? And much like Mike Sue used the framework in his speech, you know, pulling this back to systemic importance. When I think about systemic importance, I think about complexity, size, I think about impact. So I use those same principles um, and apply those to these partnership arrangements and go, hmm, is there a big size? Is there a ton of transaction volume? Are they massive such that the, the impact to the bank would be outsized by this partnership? If not, they're critical because they're using my charter, but they're not material to me. Um, is it a complex arrangement? Is this a partner who's also a vendor to the bank? Um, am I reliant on their technology platform in addition to servicing their end users as a bank? Um, if there's it, a rigorous amount of complexity in the fintech arrangement, then I treat that fintech differently and might require a different amount of maturity in some of their own risk management processes. Um, and then finally, I just look at impact and say, okay, given this size, given this complexity, and given any other factors that I may not have already brought up, such as, you know, maybe they have a, a high risk uh, consumer protection aspect to them, whatever that other element is, is there any outsized impact to the bank from this fintech arrangement? And then that's how I tier my effort um, as the bank around managing that relationship and also about what my expectations are, aka what you guys um, have referred to as a minimal acceptable maturity. Well, and I think this is the key with the minimal maturity model is I liked your outsized impact kind of framework. You don't have to always start at like the highest level. So it can be critical, but contained. And scale over time is a great way to learn. And I think, Keith, pulling this back to your dotting I's and crossing T's, if we can reduce the number of I's and T's because we do a smaller scope till we prove it out, we can begin to scale it up. And I think you know the guidance that kicked off this uh, project for Alloy Labs and this discussion today, the problem is they threw everything in the kitchen sink into you know, the regulatory guidance 
to, you know, I often like to refer to it as a roadmap to never being able to ever do a partnership. It, because if you're going to look at it with that level of high scale and high impact, to use uh, your friend Kirsten, you're just not going to get there. So I think the key here was in order to maintain that compliance, how do I scale it down to a minimal level that I can actually do something that has impact, but it's not outsized risk? And it's all about the how. It's not, it's not getting to the out. We, we all want positive customer outcomes. We all want to have transactions that comply with laws and regs. The, 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 acceptable, the level of acceptable maturity is how sophisticated does that control environment need to be to, to enable the business to operate like that? And that's, that's the key. And that's where the investment comes in. Because Kirsten, I, I loved when you talked about the supervision component at the beginning. I'm still convinced that this is a supervision problem, mostly, than it is truly a regulatory or a guidance problem. Um, the complexity of having rules, regs, and guidance from 30, 20, 10 years ago, uh, and sometimes the, the most recent of guidance is, is challenging because we're applying novel concepts to um, older, older rules and regs, many of them which are rules-based. So we, we still have to get to that outcome. But the how we achieve it is the important part. And, and as much as the, the minimal acceptable maturity is for your a, a financial institutions, risk committee, and board, it's it's that education of your regulator too to say we have we have considered the likelihood and the impact of this relationship. We are we are aware of and are considerate of these potential challenges and opportunities and here's the approach that we're going to take to get there absent a a really hard and fast rule on how to do something that's the key because we have to be able to talk the same language and translate that same message to our partner our regulator our vendors and and, and recognizing that we all still as especially when you're on the bank side of this equation have the capital A accountability on your chest that you're wearing regardless of what that contract says. So that was that was a lot of what I heard from you all earlier and connecting those dots is something that we're really, really aware of or, or really sensitive to as, as we work with our clients and as we worked with the Alliance to really drive the, the third-party diligence program forward. And it's principles-based. It's a mindset. It's all about... How do we create value for the organization and what levers do we have to get there? And Clayton, I, I agree with you. Just to jump in on that just a little bit is that the regulatory agencies, you know, um, they come in and they expect us to do our due diligence and said, okay, have you assessed the risk? Have you understood how this relationship's gonna impact the bank, impact your customers, impact data, all that good stuff, that's fine. And but then they come back and you then, as uh, Kirsten said at the beginning, it's kind of like there's inconsistencies, like how do we know we've done enough to say, yes, let's pull the trigger on this deal. So that's where I've been, you know, uh, sometimes you have to push back and you say to the regulator or the examiner and say, OK, we've thought about these things. We're willing to accept this. We think this is a minimal risk, a concern. Please share with us what it is that you want us to do. And a lot of times they'll say, oh, no, we can't. We can't tell you what to do. Well, then why are you telling me not to do this? I, you know, I'll, I'll flip the question. Why can't I do that then? And so it's just a dialogue with those, those regulators to say, hey, um, we want to do this. We think it brings value to the bank. We got a, a partner here, a fintech that can help us. We've done our due diligence. If there's a major concern we're missing, please tell us. Otherwise, we're moving forward. That is so great to hear out of your office, Keith, because too often we think of you know the risk and the vendor management. It's easy to say, oh, we can't do that. They won't let us, right? And I think that's just a, an easy excuse for you know, the business and product owners within the financial institutions that don't want to go do something that's risky, new and hard. 
And so it's great to hear that, you know, along Kirsten's point, they're great partners to go down Clayton's yellow brick road um, as we search for the promised land. So thank uh, to the three of you for taking the time to talk about everyone's favorite topic, regulatory compliance and risk management. We will have a copy of the guide that Alloy Labs uh, members along with Crow put together uh, in the show notes. But thank you to all three of you for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Thanks. You may already have payments embedded into your software platform, but do you have flexibility around how those payment experiences are created? What about control over your pricing or ability to use your own branding? Chances are you probably don't. Discover WorldPay for Platforms, a payments platform that puts you in control and puts your software customers first. This all-in-one payment facilitation platform offers more than just embedded payments. With WorldPay for Platforms, take advantage of a full set of solutions, including professional managed and advisory services to enhance your business. Make your software even better with a solution that easily integrates and adapts to your needs, helping you create experiences beyond payments. Discover the possibilities you can unleash with WorldPay for Platforms. Visit fisglobal.com slash worldpayplatforms to get started today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and highly regulated industry. As you know, I'm your host, Derek Tarkowski. I'm very excited because today we welcome Amanda Cohen, Director of Product at Resolver, to discuss all things risk. And we are getting back to original tech on reg roots. We are talking, we're going deep nerd into reg tech, all of the things that Resolver is doing um, and why uh, their offerings are so interesting and touching upon all the different technologies that they use in order to mitigate risk for their clientele. So Amanda, welcome to the show. Tell us a little bit about you and your path to Resolver. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And definitely. So I uh, did my master's in anti-money laundering and looking at financial legislation and you know, I think coming out of that, I was a little confused about where where do you land? What do you actually do with that now that you've spent all this time thinking about things theoretically? And so, you know, you there's a bank route. There's, do you want to be a lawyer? Do you want to do your PhD? And and none of those were overly um, the way that I thought that I was meant to go. And I ended up coming across Resolver. And Resolver is a software platform that is focused on risk intelligence. And so what I was able to do was come in and focus on compliance and how we can productize and standardize that process uh, for a variety of financial institutions. And what was really great about that is it took my passion for what I was really interested in academically and then paired it with this new passion of mine, which is how do you build technology and how do you find the best practices from your customers and then find ways to make that repeatable and then really drive that forward for other organizations. And so it's been a really nice pairing for me where I've got to you know marry two things that I really love together. And I've grown up, I guess, with Resolver, where I, I started, you know, managing regulatory compliance for mid-sized financial institutions exclusively in Canada. And I've grown um, into different roles where now I'm responsible for our risk management application, our internal audit, third-party risk, compliance. And so it's been a nice and natural progression, but it's been a really great journey. So it sounds like you were smarter than I was and opted not to go to law school, um, <laughs> like uh, like some other poor souls who, you know, want to get into regulatory and compliance. They're like, we've got a great idea. Let's go to, let's go to a whole bunch more schooling um, and get ourselves into a whole heap load of debt. So good for you. Good for you in making a better decision. <laughs> I don't know if it was better, but it did mean that I got to call it quits on uh, on the projects and, and school. So that was good. <laughs> um, so uh, in preparing for today's episode, uh, I I found a quote from your uh, of yours, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to the audience, and then I want you to sort of react because I thought this quote of yours. Um, sort of really encompassed everything 
honestly, that RegTech is about, and it sounds like what Resolver is really about too. So listeners, according to Amanda, constant cyber threats, convoluted regulations, complex, fragile supply chains, and the the modern business landscape is an ever-evolving minefield of risk. And businesses employing traditional GRC techniques are struggling to keep up, let alone get ahead. But there is good news. New AI-driven tools are giving forward-thinking businesses the power to proactively identify, analyze, and address these novel risks in ways that were unthinkable even a few years ago. So those are big, big words, (laughs) big words. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the thing with with risk, with compliance, is that it comes at you from everywhere. So risk is a part of your personal life. It's a part of your business. And so in order to get ahead of those types of challenges, if you're relying on traditional methods of managing your risk, which actually a lot of organizations still use today, is take that Excel spreadsheet. What am I faced with? Oh, we've got cyber risk, like how do we feel we're doing about that? You really don't have a great pulse on what's happening within your organization, what's happening externally, what are happening, what's happening to your competitors uh, or to your third parties. And so what you really need to have the ability to do is understand the breadth of information that's surrounding your organization. And so uh, from my perspective, I really do feel as though um, if you're exclusively relying on the internal brain power of people to give a finger in the air view of how they think they're doing from a risk perspective, then you have a very narrow view that's not really well informed by what's happening out in the market in your landscape. And so from a technology perspective, we work really hard to make the process of collecting your risk information as seamless as possible. And that can be regulatory risk, it could be your, you know, um, inherent or sorry, your enterprise risk, your operational risks. We want to make sure that you have all the data that's in your organization to feed those risks so that you understand what's really happening. And so a big part of that is if I guess if we're going to look at the regulatory side of it, it's like, what are your regulatory obligations? If you're relying on people every single day to make sure that you've got your a pulse on top of all the regulatory change happening within your business, then you're really hiring someone to like monitor the internet. And there's, there's better ways to do that. And so, um, you know, we were talking about this earlier, but it's, you want your employees using their brain power to solve problems, to drive strategy, to make better decisions for the business. And if all they're doing is out there collecting information to consolidate it, to stick it in some report, you're not really getting value. We don't, we don't need more data gophers, right? (laughs) And it's, so the funny thing is, it's like, it's, it's not like people are particularly great at that either. Like, like we can do it, but we miss things. We, we, we fail to recognize, you know, perhaps the significance of certain aspects of data when they're looked at in isolation. Like people as a general rule, like we suck at that part. So we're actually really vulnerable by doing it like that. Why are we so intent on doing a thing that we sort of suck at? Shouldn't we focus on the things that we suck less at? Especially because you're, you're paying people and they have so much more value than sifting through something. So if you're going to pay that employee to do something that they're not going to be able to do really particular, even if they're great at it, like there's still things you're going to miss. There's still context. There's things going on that it's just impossible to monitor as one human being. Shift that outside of of what you're doing. Rely on technology. Use other sources to validate that. You don't need to just cold turkey say, okay, someone else has got it covered. But allow those systems to do that for you so that they can analyze the output. So there's been a few different studies. Thomson Reuters did a study. Um, other organizations have done studies regarding the adoption of reg tech generally in business. And, you know, a few years ago, everyone, it was, reg tech was a major buzzword. There was lots of interest, but adoption has generally been slow of reg tech, um, as opposed to other types of technology that go to more, I I would say, core business functions. You know, everyone's really jazzed about the use of AI for underwriting, but then you talk about the use of AI for regulatory risk and compliance and people are like pumping the brakes. I guess in your role, given what you do uh, with product at Resolver, have you sort of observed the sort of 
I don't know, snail's pace of, of reg tech adoption that I think a lot of the empirical data has shown and why, and if so, why do you think that is? So I would say there's two things. One is that there's a lot of organizations that want to build it themselves. And so when you're relying on internal project projects, you're looking at, you know, getting one or two internal developers, they want to build it their own technology. And that's a big undertaking. And so your projects are slow because you don't have enough resources to build it. But then also, you know, when that project's over, it's not being maintained. And then are you really getting the value? You need people to constantly invest in this kind of infrastructure to make sure that you're constantly improving it. You're getting the insights you need. So I do think one of the misconceptions is that building it internally is maybe your best bet when there's so many other providers that you could rely on. And then it's like, pay the service for that and um, allow your developers or your internal stakeholders to build things that that hit the business that, that are really visible. Like compliance risks are often seen as a cost center. So it's like, let's not invest all of this on this internal development and let's let people who can continuously invest in the improvement of your technology take that on for you. So I would say that's one barrier we see um, is the internal decision to build it themselves. And then secondary, I think there's, a uh, there's this misconception that you have to do it all at one time. And so people think, oh, well, I'm going to adopt some kind of reg tech and I have to, you know, that means I need to have this and this and this all developed, all figured out before we can get going. And it's, that's not the case. Like you really do want to find technology that can scale with you. And so today, are you ready to just make sure you're tracking the regulatory obligations that you have to adhere to? And you want to make sure you've got that inventory. Okay, great. Start there. That's a really good starting point. And then let's layer on. Okay, now how can we engage with the business to make sure that they are adhering to the regulations? Okay. Is is that sort of the approach that Resolver takes? Because there's a number of different offerings, number of offerings that Resolver offers to its clients. Um, but it's also true. There's there's a few different areas where you guys provide a lot of value. And is that sort of your approach? Like you don't need you don't need to order like the full chef's tasting menu. Like we we can start with an appetizer here and there and see see how you like the platform. That's exactly it. And and not only just do you not need to take advantage of you know audit, risk, compliance all at one time, you don't need to do every step of the process first. Like layer it on. Maybe you're not quite ready to do really robust testing and compliance audits. Okay, well, let's just start with doing your control self-assessments and really getting a grasp of how we're adhering to these regulations. This, I find that organizations that attempt to do it all at once, they overcomplicate what they're trying to achieve. And then it, end up, it ends up just being a barrier to what they're trying to do. So when Decision you do it paralysis, early, right? Like exactly. everyone starts freaking out. It's like, oh my God, there's too much. And then everything. And then it stops. doesn't get used. And it's like, well, just do it slowly, roll it out slowly, get it, people used to it. And that's going to have a much better adoption rate. And also, you're going to be seen as this person who's implemented something that's really driven change at your company. You'd be astounded at how many people start with our technology and then like they use that as their steps of a promotion because they've been able to implement and drive change within their organization. It would seem to me that one area that might be sort of easy, low-hanging fruit for an organization that wants to adopt reg tech, but is like sort of having... Um, you know, they, they can't sort of get over the mental barrier of all of these things that they have to do. Aside from sort of like tracking rules and regulations and doing internal audits and gap analysis and all of those things, something as simple as just like managing our managing an organization's incidents is something that organizations still continue to really struggle with. What are your thoughts about sort of an incident management process as being like a nice little entryway into reg tech adoption. I think that's a great way to get started. There's so many types of compliance infractions that you need to track. So they could be privacy breaches, um, things, uh, cyber breaches, things that are coming out of customer complaints, um, suspicious transactions. And so you're probably looking at all of these different types of incidents, either like in a siloed tool or they get emailed to you. And if you just start by saying like, okay, anything that's occurring, let's feed that into our program. People don't need to log into a system. They can just submit through email and it ends up in this portal. You can start to understand what types of behavior are actually occurring within your business. And so something that we find really valuable at Resolver and something that we think really um, differentiates us in the market is that when you start tracking incidents, you start to understand how well the controls, policies, procedures you have in place are actually 
working because you might assume that some of these programs, like our customers absolutely love us. They just, everything that we do, we don't see any, any pushback, like that's no problem. And then when you start to get that information coming in, it's like, okay, well, maybe we do have a different problem than we thought. We, we weren't maybe tracking it properly, or we weren't seeing those types of incidents get raised. And so when you marry those two together, uh, you start to understand whether the things you have in place that you believe are working really well are in fact working as well as you think. So as a practitioner, as a lawyer, um, what I really love about that sort of as being like, if you're going to dip a pinky toe into the reg tech world, having incident management be a good starting point is because there has not been a regulatory inquiry that I've ever handled for a client where those types of trends and analyses and data are not central to whatever information or request or whatever inquiry is being made. Regulators want to know that you are tracking the, those data points on a systematic basis and not just tracking them, but actually looking at them and analyzing them. So from a data perspective, if you're not gathering it properly, or if it's, if, if all your fallible humans are the ones sort of like pulling this information together and gathering it, like any good programmer will tell you like garbage in, garbage out. If it's, if the data's haphazardly put together to begin with or doesn't give a complete picture of the good, the bad, and, uh, you know, hopefully not too ugly, but the ugly as well, you're not presenting a clear picture to the regulators. And when you don't have a grasp of what your own data is telling you from a lawyer's perspective, like, how am I supposed to defend you? And then how are you supposed to advocate and defend yourselves as you're getting audited by your licensing bodies or, you know, you have to, you know, sit for an examination and all of these things are so routine now, right? It's not a question of, do you get an inquiry? It's when you get the inquiry and are you going to be prepared for the inquiry and really making sure that your organization is, is buttoned up and organized and can present information in a coherent manner. That's not only good for internally, your business, your bottom line, your customers, it's so good for the regulatory bodies. It, they love it so much because it want, it makes their job so much easier. It makes my job easier. You're spending less money on lawyers. Hooray, less money on lawyers. Um, but it really is not all, like there, to me, there's an immediate ROI because it's not just this bucket um, that's going to be used internally. It's like, no, this is really good, valuable information that all of our outside counsel, our consultants, our accountants everybody can use day one. Like we can use that day one. Um, when you can also use it to drive improvement. So if you, you know, now that you've got a grasp of what's happening, you've been able to um, report it properly to your regulator. You've been able to provide it with all those stakeholders who need access to it. So, okay, what are you going to do about it? And how are we going to track the fact that we're bringing it down? What's interesting is generally when someone implements our incident management program, you actually see their incident uh, uptick because people previously weren't capturing that information. So it does look almost like you're doing worse before you get better because all of this information was out there. It's not like these incidents weren't occurring, but no one was talking about them and no one was tracking them. And so if you didn't have visibility into them, you know, what, what things are you missing as a part of your organization and, and how catastrophic could that be if you didn't have that level of insight into it? Well, not only that, I mean, I also think from a corporate governance perspective, um, the leadership of organizations, the C-suite, your boards of directors, your audit committees, all of those bodies have really important fiduciary responsibilities to the organization. And if they're not getting a clear picture of sort of what the full risk landscape is or what the full incident landscape is, they can't exercise those duties to the best of their abilities. Um, so this is also a massively important tool to keep your boards informed, to keep your audit committees informed, to make sure that all your public disclosures are accurate. It's important from an investor relations standpoint. Um, and I agree with you, Amanda, everything gets so underreported at the beginning and that's not good, right? That's not good because then it's my job later, like when you see, what appears on paper to be a spike, it's not really a spike. It's really just finally an accurate snapshot of what the current risk state of your business is, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, and I think too, on the audit committee side, or even just auditors, if there's a lot of times when audit plans are driven on cycles. And so they're doing their testing because it's been two years and that risk level is relatively high. And so you're going to dig into that part of the business. It's like, well, how accurate is that? And what happened over the last two years? And should we even test that? Or is it like so insignificant, but this other part of the business has these like concerns and these red flags that we need to dig into. And so you're now starting to test in areas where it makes the most sense, where it brings the most value, where you can uncover things, as opposed to doing some kind of rolling audit test plan that really doesn't bring you the value that you need. Um, and right. Really it's, pro it's processes that are divorced from reality and that are not data-driven mm -hmm. processes. It's just more check the box go through the motions type situations, which is, I can tell you based on personal experience with the regulators, they're real tired of that. They're like, yeah, like, great. We're glad that you're doing that. But why aren't you doing these other things? Like one is not a replacement for the other. So great. You're doing your regularly scheduled penetration testing for cybersecurity. Terrific. But, you know, Last year, you had three examples of different phishing scams that infiltrated your organization. Why haven't you done a tabletop exercise with your employees to manage X, Y, and Z? As an organization, you need to have a good answer for that. And you also need to know like, oh, we did have an email phishing problem. Mm -hmm. Why didn't we do additional training exactly. or, or anything to address that? Um, so I love the idea of technology being able to basically like percolate all of the things that we need to be paying attention to instead of the things that we think we should be paying attention to because that's what's been in the manual for so long. And we just have to, you know, be good little soldiers checking off all of our little boxes. <laughs> um, and I think that the regulators more and more are going to demand that. And that's, I mean... It's true in Canada. It's true in the United States. It's definitely true in Europe. Um, it's and it's not changing anytime soon. I don't see, I don't see us going back. No, and interestingly, which I think is a trend that we're seeing more and more of. People were always really hesitant to share their. I mean, and they still are hesitant to share their information with audit. Hesitant to share their information with regulators. But the change we're seeing is that these organizations who feel like they're on top of things are much more flexible and open to saying, okay, to the regulator, do you want just access to some of these reports so you could log in and you can take advantage of it? You can pull the information when you need to, as opposed to, and it sounds, I know a lot of people probably aren't feeling like that. Oh my God, like my little lawyer heart, just like, I just got like a little, I know, but you're giving me a slight cardiac episode, Amanda. I don't know if I would go that far with a client yet, but like conceptually, I dig it. Actually, it's it's not, I don't think there's a lot of people there, but you're seeing it. We're seeing it as part of RFPs. We're seeing it as people are coming in and saying, how can I make that process easier to share the information? And obviously the information is very combed through what gets pushed out there is the picture that they're presenting, but it is becoming one of those areas where they want to take that step out and allow people to be a little bit more self-sufficient. And I say a little, <laughs> we're not totally well, you know, everything out. For certain organizations that sit under supervision of some of these large regulators, it's an interesting concept because rather than having to do like your 60 day fire drill, um, before, you know, uh, a regulator comes to do a supervisory exam, the notion of if you've had access to this information all along, we're not hiding anything, um, is very appealing to, or can be very appealing to a lot of organizations. And then a regulator is like forced to like look real hard being like, well, do we actually, do we actually want that? Theoretically, they want that, but, but do they actually? Because that also creates an additional burden on them that they are presumed to have to be looking at it. Definitely. Um, and, uh, you know, whether or not they, they actually are to the extent that they actually are, I think probably varies, um, by organization and where they think that the higher risk for, for them from a oversight perspective is. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how many of those initial concepts really come to fruition, but the concept, if people, I do think you're right. Does the regulator actually want to take the time? Are they really doing those things when they're just 
you know, not in the process of an audit or not in the process of working with you specifically. I don't know, but it, it is something that we're seeing more traction on. And we'll see, I guess, over the next year or two, if that's something that people truly want to implement into their product. Yeah. And then there's also the difference between like the prudential regulators and then just the, those who are fo focused on enforcement. And there's so much overlap and in information sharing uh, amongst all of them. Um, but I, I definitely, I reacted to your statement the way sometimes my clients react to me suggesting that we, we may want to do a self-disclosure <laughs> discover a problem. Like, Why would we do that? Yeah. I was like, well, you know, we're in there is an advantage. There's some brownie points to be gained sometimes yep. by raising your hand and saying we have an issue, but here's how we've already corrected it. Mm -hmm. And again, you're not able to do what I, I always want to make sure that my clients are on the right side of the regulators, right? And it's not to say that mistakes don't happen or that issues don't happen. Of course they do. But it is about how you respond, react, and manage them and try to remediate mm -hmm. going forward. I love the idea of when you have that data, like what you're talking about at your fingertips, you are so much more empowered to pick and choose where you want to undertake that effort. Um, and you're doing it earlier and you're not. And I have to imagine that the speed at which that information is available is a hundred thousand times faster than waiting for a human to sort of compile all this information, review it, report it. Um, then their supervisors find holes in it and they say, what about this? What about that? Um, you're really expediting that analysis process, which I, I can tell you that from a legal perspective is completely invaluable to an organization who has to defend themselves or prepare for risk. And even just run a run of the mill stuff, like like a litigation demand from a customer or, you know, a consumer complaint or this, any number of inputs and channels of, you know, someone wanting to complain about something, you now are empowered with real-time information with how to respond. Um, whereas otherwise it would be a really long lag time, really long. Well, we had a customer that spent a year and a half building their regulatory inventory. They operate in, I think, seven countries and a year and a half building the regulatory inventory for one. And it's like, well, how are you going to scale your bit? How are you going to scale your business at that speed? And then with regulatory technology, um, we were able to take that. I mean, there was the year and a half and then we reproduced essentially the same work within like a month and a bit. And so, and that was just the initial, once you've done it once, then it's repeatable. It's con we're constantly tracking um, or, or the third party that we work with is constantly tracking your obligations. They're giving you updates. They're telling you exactly every time something changes. And so like someone's time for a year and a half is a, is a really long time when that problem can get solved much faster. And then also you're not missing anything moving forward. It's all maintained, tracked and monitored for you moving forward. Yeah, I love it. You're speaking to my nerdy, <laughs> nerdy heart. It's, it's terrific. Um, so we're sort of getting like close to our time. If there was anything else about Resolver that you wanted um, listeners to really like walk away with, or if there's like one parting thought you wanted to leave listeners with about the organization or RegTech or any other nerdy thing that you think is really important, what would it be? I think that it's not as overwhelming as you think. And if you're struggling to get started, um, whether it's us, whether it's whatever provider that you choose to work with, ask them for a bit of a vision of how you implement something and then how you build it out. You don't need to do everything day one. Help them map out what your journey looks like over the first year, two years, and the types of value that you're going to get out of that solution so that you can piecemeal it into something that's actually manageable, something that you feel like you can you can take on. Um, because a lot of these teams are, are really small and you're working, you are wearing seven different hats and you're trying to do all of these things. And so break it into manageable chunks and then I think you'll be much more successful. So if any of my listeners want to learn more about you or Resolver, where should they go? Well, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, it's Amanda Cohen or Resolver.com and you can get a hold of us. Awesome. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today. That's it for another week of the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. 
This episode was produced by our US-based production team, including producer Lisbeth Severins, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, with social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you like this episode, don't forget to tweet it out or post it on your favorite social media. Or leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, or wherever it is that you listen to our show. Those actions help other people find our podcast. And in return, that helps us build an audience that can be supported by sponsorship so we can continue to provide you with our award-winning content every week. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you on Breaking Banks next week.